Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Very interesting show um, in the upcoming for you today. Uh, not, not something that you usually uh, hear people talk about, but my guest is an expert on this. Uh, he is Dr. Michael Myers, and he is the author or co-author of eight books. And today we're going to be talking about what I think is his latest book, uh, which is called Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Care. Now, <laughs> ever, have you been thinking much about that, physicians dying of suicide? Well, you know, I've been ta- talking, you may have heard me talk in a previous show or um, about how physicians, are, because of how medicine has changed, physicians are increasingly depressed, and disillusioned, it isn't what they went into medicine for, and all the other D's, <laughs> um, very dissatisfied, disgusted, <laughs> I could go on. And so it's no wonder that there is presumably, and we'll find out in a minute, an increase in the number of um, doctors killing themselves. Certainly there is an increase, I know, in doctors dropping out of medicine. Um, I recently tweeted something about uh, doctors dropping like flies because of the disillusionment and depression and so on. Not all of them kill themselves, but um, they retire early or they go into some other field, or um, or they don't become or, or they stop uh, their plans to go to medical school in the first place because of how medicine has changed. So I'm really very interested to hear what Dr. Myers has to say about all of this. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Lieberman. Um, Dr. Myers is a professor of clinical psychiatry, and he's the immediate past vice chair of education and director of training in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, which is in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, this is your latest book, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. So, um, now you've written... Before we talk about this book, I just want to give a little background. You have written similar, I mean, books looking at the same subject subject from different perspectives, like uh, The Physician as Patient, a Clinical Handbook for Mental Health Professionals, Touched by Suicide, Hope and Healing After Loss, uh, The Handbook of Physician Health, and then we'll go into all your, uh, I love, we have to find time at the end, at least, to talk about um, doctors and marriage, intimate relationships in medical school, et cetera, et cetera. God, <laughs> I could have written a book on that. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so on, doctors and divorce, doctors and marriage, all these kinds of things, very interesting stuff. So let, but let's talk right now on, on, about this latest book. First of all, you know, I always, when I was in elementary school, starting when I was in elementary school and we would have book reports, I would always be fascinated by who the author was and what in their life made them um, write this book, whether it was a, you know, in most cases in elementary school, it would be like a storybook <laughs> of some sort. 
Um, but what, you know, I remember Ichabod Crane, for example, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I was fascinated with what would mm-hmm. make somebody write that stuff. Um, so, so what made you become so um, focused on suicide? Okay. Let me start. And before we start, I wanted to just make one correction uh, sure. to something that you mentioned. We yeah. don't know if the actual rate of physicians dying by suicide is going up or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the only source we have for any epidemiology is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And when I t- talk with them and look on their website, and this is all over the physician health literature, is that it's estimated that somewhere between three and 400 physicians um, die by suicide each year in the United States. And so that translates into roughly one physician a day. And we don't know how many medical students might die by suicide. Mm. So as I say, we don't know if it's changing or not. But I picked up on that because I basically feel that one is too many. I feel one is too many of many, many things. But to get back to your question, though. Yes, yes. I mean, that that number is staggering to think every day. At least yeah. one uh, physician exactly. suicide. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And so I think how this all started, in fact, I think that unconsciously I started writing this book when I was a first-year medical student mm. because what happened was that one of my roommates, who another medical student, there were four of us sharing a, an apartment, killed himself over the Thanksgiving weekend. And... Uh, that was my first exposure and experience to suicide, and it was awful. I wrote about it in the, uh, in the introduction to the book, and that was back in 1962. And let me tell you, if we think that there's stigma out there today associated with various things in the house of medicine, the culture of medicine, it was even worse at that time. And so when Bill killed himself it was almost impossible to really get people to talk about it. We, we literally just buried ourselves in our studies. Uh, we heard nothing from the dean's office. There was no huh. outreach to us or anything like that. I, I contacted his family. He wasn't from the city where I was attending medical school, but um, the, there, there, was, there was no service. It was as if Bill never existed. Oh, wow. And, and then it was only later as I... Uh, as I got further into, well, not just medical school, but into my residency training, and I had an unusual residency in psychiatry where I, I actually got to look after uh, a couple of physicians. I saw my first physician patient, actually, on Christmas Day of 1970. I was a second-year resident in psychiatry, a doctor who had had a manic episode. Um, And then after that, I looked after a doctor's wife on her inpatient unit. And then I did a year of child psychiatry, and I looked after a couple children of doctors. And the, the reason I'm telling you that is because it gave me a little bit of confidence in actually looking after uh, one of our own, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, because there is that sort of intimidation when you're looking after somebody who's you know, trained in the same field as you are. So therefore, when I finished my training, I embarked on a 35-year career of half-time private practice and half-time academic work, and which I did until 2008. But then after after um, 15 years of a generalist in my private practice, I was I was getting so many referrals 
of physicians I had started to publish then in the area of physician health. And mm. so people, you know, wanted to come to see this so-called local expert or whatever. And so then I decided to restrict my practice. So I only yeah. looked at, for the last for the last 20 years, I only looked after physicians and their family members uh, until 2008. So, so that's where all of this experience built. And then I got involved in many committees and research, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the short version, you know, of how I got, you know, to the physician health piece, which that's started. That's very interesting. That must have been. I mean, that just shows what uh, trust and uh, confidence people had in your work that that they were referring um, physicians to you. You know that uh, because. Yeah. As I'm sure you're going to talk about, you know, there are many reasons why physicians don't seek help. But but before yeah. we get into all of that, um, yeah. did, looking back or uh, <laughs> on Bill, um, mm-hmm. were you able to figure out why he did commit suicide? No, and thank you for asking that. And and I'm not alone. I don't mean just with regard to people who knew Bill. I work so much in the area of suicide bereavement. And I obviously know so many people, not just patients, but colleagues of mine who have lost loved ones to suicide. And for so many of them, there's a mystery. And one of my co-authors, Carla Fine, she's the one that I co-wrote the book Touched by Suicide with. She lost her urologist husband to suicide. And she coined a phrase, which is, he, I'll never know, he has taken the answers with him. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of thing. And there's often that mystery. Even if somebody had suffered from an illness that, you know, you can look back and think, well, that contributed to their to that mm-hmm. fateful decision to end their lives. There's still sort of a sense, but, but you know, but why now and that sort of thing. And, and so I really don't know. I, I, what I do remember, though, is that... When we said goodbye um, at the weekend, I mean, he he just he seemed fine. He said, "See you after the weekend." Mm. But I realized now that I was the last person to see him alive, and I have no idea, you know, what you know, you know, what might have contributed to that, as I say, to that uh, sort of fateful decision that he he made to to kill himself. So, did the 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 rest of you roommates? Um... I mean, did you talk about that amongst yourselves? Yes. Were you oh, sort of obsessed that, with trying to figure out why? Well, thank you. That's quite a story, too, because he and I were first-year medical students. The other two roommates were senior medical students. Hmm. And I kind of walked through this as I remembered it and, you know, kind of reached out to one of the other, uh, my, the, one of the other senior uh, roommates was away in, uh, in Europe. He was doing a, a, um, an elective in tropical medicine. But the other person, he 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 was he was just sort of stunned, and and then we talked a bit, and then he just excused himself. He said, "Well, I've got a big exam tomorrow," and and closed his door, and that was very symbolic because mm-hmm. there was a message there. Whenever I I think I only approached him one other time, and again he shut me down, and I think this says something about people and the, the family members. Of, of people who die by suicide confront that all the time where they feel um, avoided or, or sort of shot down, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And, and the, the other roommate, when he got back from uh, his, his study abroad, um, he didn't seem to want to talk about it either. So, you know, it was just... And my classmates didn't either. I mean, we're, you know, you get... 
you know that you very well know the the defense mechanism of sublimation. Well, that's exactly what we all did. We sublimated, mm. and um, it's. A, but as I say, it's so shameful when I look back on it. It's it's as if he never existed, and this is why I feel very strongly that when people's deaths by suicide are are declared openly, as it took so long in the AIDS pandemic, I, I really respect family members who do that because I feel that that the individual should be respected for how they died and, of course, how they lived and that they shouldn't have to be ashamed. Uh-huh. So. Hmm. Um, well, okay, so yeah. <laughs> I guess we can, I guess we can, uh, I mean, I know it's just, I would imagine um, trying to put myself in that spot. I would, I, I would be asking myself all the time, like I don't know, trying to figure it out and asking if there was anything that I did or didn't do, or yes. was there a girlfriend yeah. issue, or a not doing well in studies issue, or a family issue, or or an unrecognized mental illness. I mean, right. you could sort of drive yourself crazy by asking well, see, all yes. those questions. Yes, and, and, and actually, Dr. Lieberman, I certainly have done that. Um, I, you know, I certainly uh, I, I went through a lot of this in therapy, of course, which I didn't start right at that time. I started that in my residency, but you know, my 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 sort of Bill's life and death was part of my psychotherapy journey, mm-hmm. you know, with my psychiatrist. But also, that has certainly been you know my journey in many respects of patients who I've lost mm-hmm. to suicide, including including physician patients mm-hmm. um, that I've lost to suicide as well. Exactly all. You know all all of all of those questions and uh, speculations that you mentioned just a moment ago. Yes, yes, you yeah. can't help but do that. Yes. Well, exactly. all right. Well, let's let's. So so that has kind of contributed, of course. That was sort of as you were saying, that was sort of the seed um, for yes. these future books on um, right. related to suicide. So yes. um, let's talk about the current book, the latest book. Um, yes. Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned right. from Their Families and Others Who Cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about it. Okay. So how that came about is a little over, it's actually it'd be two and a half years ago now. I decided, I, I had produced a videotape on physician suicide in the late 90s. I think it was 1999. And it got a lot of press and was reproduced and sort of shown in many, I mean, I, I, sh- I showed at many kind of medical meetings that I attended, but also a lot of uh, countries, uh, you know, uh, got copies of it as well because mm. this is a worldwide problem. And I've published and I've written articles on physician suicide, but I came to the conclusion that I really wanted to hear more from the families and from the colleagues and from therapists who look after doctors um, and from patients of doctors as well who had lost their doctor to suicide. I thought there's a whole group of people out there that we really haven't heard their stories. Mm. So Mm -hmm. what I did then two and a half years ago, I embarked on this qualitative research project where I, I, I had a bit of a database and I started from there and then I got other names from people that I interviewed. A number of these interviews were done in person and others were done uh, over the telephone. And I've interviewed uh, roughly 100 people here in the United States, in Canada, in England, and in Australia as well. Um, 
And it, it, they've basically been very kind of open-ended interviews with, with, with minimal structure because I really just wanted to hear their stories. Uh-huh. So the vast majority are family members, but as I mentioned a moment ago, I've also interviewed roommates. I've interviewed training directors. I've interviewed um, students who lost their professor to suicide. I've interviewed... Um, uh, actually, uh, there's another cohort of physicians who I interviewed who have made near-lethal suicide attempts but didn't die. Mm. I wanted to hear their stories as well. And then as I I interviewed a few patients who had lost their doctors to suicide. And so that's what the book is about. It's a very rich, it's a a really rich narrative-filled book. Um, And uh, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm so grateful, so very grateful to these people who who opened up their hearts to me uh, so that, you know, we could learn more about mm-hmm. this very difficult subject. Mm-hmm, so. hmm I'm sure it was very um, uh, therapeutic for them as well to be able to tell someone like yourself their story because probably, you know, there were things that they didn't um, ever tell anyone. Yes, exactly. And that, that in itself, I mean, for them as well as for me, because as much as I, I mean, I felt so honored to be able to kind of parachute into people's lives and hearts and then, you know, to kind of come out of that or whatever. But I mean, this, you know, some of it, even those times when I felt pretty, you know, overwrought after, say, a two-hour interview with someone, I thought, well... This, you know, this is small potatoes compared to what these individuals are going through themselves. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The other thing, too, that I found very interesting is had to do with consent because there were many people who um, I had different levels of consent for this. Some people were very clear that they wanted their name to be attached to the story because they feel very strongly that they will not hide any longer. They don't want to hide in the shadows, and they feel that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And so a few of the stories in the book are attributed to the actual sort of owners you know, of the story. But uh-huh. there were many, many others who felt that they were best to kind of keep the privacy of their loved one a secret uh-huh. as well as their own identity. And so uh-huh. for those, I've used pseudonyms. And, uh, and then there were other people who changed their mind on, and decided that they, that they did want to declare their identity. So uh-huh. it's, a very, it's a very, very complicated subject, uh, suicide. And as I say, there's <clears throat> still so much stigma associated, especially in Madison. Yes. So, well, we do need to take a break now, but when we come okay. back, I'm sure what everyone's interested in is what some of, these, what some of the... Um, sure general patterns were or what some of the particularly interesting stories were that you gathered. So we will need to take a break now. My guest is Michael Myers. Uh, His book is called Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Cared. Uh, You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. So stay tuned. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with Dr. Michael Myers. His latest book is called Why Physicians Die by Suicide. Um, Lessons, um, I'm sorry, (laughs) Lessons learned from those families and other, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm screwing up the title here. <laughs> um, lessons learned from their families and others who care. There we go. Um, so before the break, Dr. Myers was talking about these hundred interviews he has done um, with families and those who cared of people, doctors, who um, committed suicide. So my first question, you know, is um, what, were some of the most common causes that these people attributed to their loved one or their, you know, their own personal physician for having uh, killed themselves? Okay. Well, the first one is the most common one in any kind of suicide death, and that's um, underlying psychiatric illness. Mm -hmm. And we know from research in the whole sort of world of suicide that roughly 85 to 90 percent of people who die by suicide have been living with some type of psychiatric illness that was perhaps not recognized or diagnosed or treated properly so that it was you know partially treated or untreated the one thing that i found so shocking in these interviews was there was roughly 10 to 15 percent of the decedents, the, the, the physicians who died by suicide, who had received absolutely no treatment at all. And so what I mean by that is that they went from wellness to illness to death by suicide. And as you know, Dr. Lieberman, I mean, we physicians don't rush off to doctors at any, at, with anything, but mm-hmm. we do eventually go. So, for instance, I've never heard of a physician dying of cancer who didn't at least go for, you know, a diagnosis, perhaps chemotherapy, surgery, radiation therapy, or something mm-hmm. before they died of the, of the disease. But, you know, as psychiatrists, this really troubled me that there are doctors out there who are dying of, I like to believe, treatable, treatable psychiatric illnesses. And this was very hard for the family members because they pleaded with their loved one to go get help. Mm. And I think, and their, 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 their pleas and their, everything just seemed to fall on deaf ears because the reasons advanced by their loved one had something to do with things like, oh, I don't trust 
the help out there or I'm afraid that um, there'll be confidential breaches, I'll lose my job, people will hear about it, I'll be gossiped about, I'll lose my patients, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lose my medical license, I won't be able mm-hmm. to get malpractice insurance, and it just goes on and on and on. And I could tell just reading between the lines that I interviewed with some of these people that by that point their individual loved one was probably quite ill and was very prone to, you know, very irrational thinking at that point. But it doesn't matter. They still couldn't reason with the person. And next thing you know, the poor soul is, has taken his life or her life. So there was that, there was certainly that cohort. There's a whole other group, though. Oh, let me just finish something. Now, when yes. you say um, that the majority had undiagnosed or untreated psychiatric illness. Now, I know people are, my listeners are thinking, well, how could they be a doctor? How could they be working as a doctor and have psychiatric illness? So, um, predominantly, you mean major depression, right? Yeah. uh, Major depression and sometimes alcohol and other drug use, Mm -hmm. and then sometimes that combination, and sometimes say maybe even sort of a a bipolar 2 type of illness, Mm -hmm. which is, as you know, a milder form of uh, bipolar illness, coupled with maybe a personality disorder or things like that, they just didn't get attention. Mm-hmm. So, and yet, uh, the, there's, there's this old axiom out there that the last thing to go in our lives as physicians is our work. Now, actually, when you begin to look after doctors for so many years like I did, you can see all kinds of you know, holes in that argument, but yet, on the surface, the individual seems to be functioning okay. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. So that's that's the rub there that I think for people listening to this show, they really are surprised. In fact, my co-author, Carla Fine, her husband, he said, he's a urologist. He saw patients all morning and made appointments for them to come back early huh. the next week. He saw his last patient at 1, at, uh, one o'clock, and the coroner estimated that the, the time of his death was 3 p.m. in his office. Hmm. So... So two hours later, basically, he was he, he was dead by a pre-planned suicide method. Hmm. <clears throat> so he knew when he was giving them appointments for the next yes. week that yes. he wasn't going to be there, but he didn't want anyone to to get a hint no. that he was thinking that's of killing right. himself. Well, and that's the other thing too. Whether it was it would seem that way because Carla found all kinds of information on his computer after his death that he had pre-ordered the thiopental that he used to kill himself. But what the point is, we, we know from a lot of suicide research that people remain ambivalent sometimes right up until the very mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. So it is quite possible that people go to work and something happens. Maybe that's kind of a good thing. And they say, I think I'll put, I think I'll put this off until tomorrow or next mm-hmm. week or something. So that sort of thing. So that was, that was one of the things and you know, that is really quite serious. The other one is the fact that People can slip into psychiatric illnesses and not really recognize really how symptomatic they are, um, and, and especially depression. You mentioned that earlier, major depression, that they, they think, well, maybe I've got some, oh, maybe I've got anemia, or maybe I've got you know, a virus or something, or maybe it is depression, but still, you know, aren't we all depressed or something? They try to rationalize it. Or maybe this is burnout, but not depression. Mm-hmm. But yet they just keep getting worse and worse. And then they kind of lose insight into the fact that they're not sleeping. They've lost weight. They're having thoughts of suicide, which they begin to think is just normal. Mm-hmm. And things like that. So, And I've looked after psychiatrists like that in my private practice 
who come to me because I say, you know, I didn't really want to come, but my wife insisted that I come, and she's not in medicine. You know, she's a she's a designer, but she said she says she thinks I'm depressed, and you know, I'm a psychiatrist. The patient says to me, uh-huh. and if if I had a medical student with me in the office, a medical student would be able to make the diagnosis. But when the poor psychiatrist is so ill like that, he can't see himself just mm-hmm. how ill he is. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an important message I try to get out there when to, when I lecture to my colleagues in psychiatry, you know, to make sure that you very carefully assess your patients for this and and don't be mad at them if they can't make a self diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So you know, you mentioned something about uh, your being in therapy, and I went into analysis too because I I mm-hmm. um, practice from a psychoanalytic point of view, and mm-hmm. it used to be back in the day that it was much more prevalent for yes. people in psychiatric residencies um, to feel that, or to get the message from their mentors uh, that this right. is part of being a psychiatrist to get into mm-hmm. your own therapy. And that yeah. isn't being pushed as much these days. No, it isn't. No. And yet, uh, you know, thankfully, I mean, still a, you know, a certain number of, of um, residents are still going on their own, and that's a good thing, but mm-hmm. some of them will go later. But I don't know how, I, I think some of that might be stigma. Some of that might be sort of a biological movement in, you know, in the field of psychiatry. But, well, yeah. but even then, though, it troubles me when I listen to some of these stories of families where their loved one had finally gone to get some treatment, but basically all they got was drugs and nobody yeah. really talked to, to the person. <laughs> or, And so that was another yeah. reason why physicians can be kind of prone to getting worse or falling through the cracks is because it's very well known that when, that when we go for care ourselves, because we're physicians, well, it's, it's bi-directional that we may, we may fall through the cracks because the person looking after us is maybe a bit nervous or cuts corners and mm-hmm. doesn't give us the same standard of care mm-hmm. that that same person would give a non-physician. Right. So that's the one thing. The other thing is when we as physician patients aren't, don't come completely clean with our doctors, you know, we withhold stuff. We don't trust. We got to build up a relationship, mm-hmm. and then, of course, when that occurs, that's great because then you can trust and then really start to disclose some of these long-standing self-destructive thoughts that you have. Mm-hmm. So that was another another thing that I found that too many were kind of falling through the cracks by maybe just getting either a prescription from a primary care doctor, or maybe they would self-prescribe and not go, or even if they were going to a psychiatrist, that's somebody who only does split treatment, and so, meaning that the psychiatrist does the prescribing, but a non-medical therapist, like a psychologist or a clinical social worker, does the therapy, which yes, is okay. This is, this is one of my, no, it's not okay. This is one of my pet peeves. Well, I feel that psychiatrists have all... Um, uh, thrown themselves under the bus in under order to bus. make a living and have yeah. become pill pushers and yeah. um, have given up therapy. I mean, I have refused to do that. I don't see any patient yeah. who right. won't come to me what, at least once a week for therapy, and if they need That's medication, good. I give uh-huh. them medication. But this idea yeah. of the, the psychiatrist you know, uh, writing prescriptions, seeing somebody for 15 to 30 minutes right. and sending them out the door with a prescription... And then hoping or maybe suggesting that they find a psychologist or a social worker or something right. and 
half the time at least they don't do that. And I mean, besides, even when they do do that, the psychiatrist and the other um, the ther- the other therapist uh, don't really communicate because everybody's busy. No, and and, and right. th- people do fall through the cracks, and it's kind of sad yes. that physicians. It's- um, have that same problem. That's right. See, that is very sad. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, I, made the, I made the point in the book that one thing, and we know this medical legally too, that every attorney out there would say that if you're going to engage in split treatment, whether you're the psychiatrist or whether you're the psychologist, you better be making very good notes and you better be communicating with each other and keeping a record of all, a documentation of yes. those phone calls or those meetings, and especially if you change the therapy or if you change the medication. That's stuff is extremely important. Yes. So, yes. so there's that. And the other thing I found, Dr. Lee, is that my physi- the physician um, families that I interviewed where their loved one did have split treatment, the, the doctor wasn't very happy about that. And I think it's because they're physicians themselves. And I put, I put a section in the book about that for physicians that, you know, it's a little bit like, I guess, somebody going to a urologist and say, well, I, you know, I don't do... I don't do prostates. I do I do <laughs> bladder work, but you know that's sort of. I don't know. <laughs> so yes, yeah. I know it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. just appalling that um, psychiatrists yeah. have 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 yeah. given this away. I mean, if, yeah. if this had been the way it was when I went to medical school, I would yeah. never have become a psychiatrist. I mean, if it was just right. a hand. No, I wouldn't pills, either. No, I I I, I wouldn't either. Now there's then there's uh, if you want there's uh, there are a couple of other reasons. One is yes. there are there there are physicians out there who truly are altruistic with a capital A and uh, to a fault. And those individuals who do they give and give and give and give to their patients, to charities, to their volunteer work, uh, their families, and they do not take care of themselves. Yeah. And those individuals are prone to become very ill and sometimes self-destructive. And so I certainly saw you know, some of these interviews, there were, there were physicians like that. And that is completely opposite to the so-called sort of rugged, de- sort of rugged determinism of other physicians where they will not go for help no matter how much you, you try to force them. They, they see themselves as completely self-sustaining. They they loathe being dependent. Um, mm-hmm. They won't go to doctors for anything, including psychiatric care, and they're at risk of harming themselves as well because they really don't believe it that actually, you know, that they could actually benefit from from help. There's, mm-hmm. And that first group of doctors feel I looked after so many doctors who apologized for coming to see me, huh. as if as if they were taking up my time or something. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where they're. Their self-esteem was at. So the other. Well, now, the other, well let's also. What yeah. about doctors? And I don't know if. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you write about this, but yeah. what about okay. doctors? I mean, what I was kind of saying at the beginning of the show. Um, I think there's such a disillusionment with the state of medicine these days, uh-huh. not just psychiatrists. Um, yeah. But you know, just I mean, how medicine has changed so much yeah. compared to when so many of these people who. Uh, commit suicide started, and mm-hmm. um, you know where they wanted. They became doctors because they wanted to help people. They wanted to sort of have an independent practice. They yeah. weren't. They didn't want to have to uh, not look at the patient, but look at their computer and fill mm-hmm. out all kinds of forms. They wanted. They expected to have a decent uh, living, 
I mean, all these yeah. things that have been taken away in recent years. That's right. That's right. No, I put a big section in there. As you know, that you're, you're really touching on burnout right now. Um, uh, and, the, and you probably know that because this is not just in the medical literature, but in the lay literature as well, that the ballpark figure is roughly 50% of today's physicians in the United States are, are, living, are, are living with symptoms of burnout. Meaning, you know, they don't have the same energy as they once did. They don't have the same empathy as they once did. They feel powerless like a cog in the wheel. And that's one of the definitions of burnout. One of the symptoms is that you've lost autonomy or agency, personal mm-hmm. agency. And that that is a killer. And people can kill themselves because of of relentless burnout where they see no options. The other ones that you were describing who actually decide to retire early or who go into another field, those are the ones who are still, you know, able to be proactive, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's some people who just get so, so, I think, down the road and maybe have such huge financial responsibilities or something that you try to talk with them about those options and they just kind of shake their head. Mm-hmm. They think, well, what else am I going to do? Work at Starbucks? <laughs> you know, like it's impossible for them to even be, to even kind of go there because this is sort of how they've been trained, what they've done for decades. But it is true. They're sad. They're worn out, uh, miserable. And, and you, you combine that with um, overuse of alcohol or self-medicating, mm-hmm. and that can be a very dangerous combination, you know, for people who who can't take it anymore and just really need, you know, need relief from their uh, psychological pain. Well, because of, you know, um, insurance and Obamacare and whatever, mm-hmm. I, I was actually hopeful that when Obamacare was going to be repealed, I was all excited about that, and then mm. now it's going to be replaced with something else. I, I don't quite <laughs> know. Nobody knows exactly right. the details of what, but yeah. um, but I was hoping that when Obamacare was repealed, that it would go back to a free market. But um, that yeah. doesn't look like that's going to be what's happening. But right. um, but yeah, these doctors are. I, so many doctors feel like hamsters on a wheel. You know, trying to work faster, hardly getting to Mm -hmm. talk to their patients, because in order to make the same amount of money they were making 10 years ago, they have to see more patients, and for a shorter amount of time. It's just gotten ridiculous. Well, I just heard the music, so we need to take another break. My guest is Dr. Michael Myers. His book is called Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Cared. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. 
Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get through me quickly so I can get back to my very interesting guest, Dr. Michael Myers, whose latest book is called Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Cared. And that's what I want to ask you about now. Um, when people, when loved ones die by suicide, um, who aren't necessarily doctors, one of the feelings that the people they leave behind feel is anger. You know, how dare this person um, uh, hurt me? Uh, give me all this pain by by killing themselves. You know, they were, this was a very selfish thing that they did, and so I'm wondering if, if that how that um, emotion is, or whether there are other emotions specific to doctors killing themselves. Okay, thanks for the question. You're right. Anger, of course, is is really you know one of the very common emotions after suicide, not just in family members, but you know anybody who is really kind of close to the person as well. I certainly heard that from patients of doctors as well. You know, anger at their doctor for killing himself or killing yeah. herself because they felt abandoned. Yeah. You know that sort of thing. And so, for families, sure, they can be left with all kinds of mess. They can be left with debt things like that. The one thing I noticed, though, is, is um, well, we all, we've known for some time that the bereavement associated with suicide is different uh, than, <clears throat> than if you lose your, your loved one in a car accident or to cancer or something like that, because there's, there's this sort of unrelenting sort of guilt or regret or whatever, did I miss something? You, you alerted to this earlier, you know, that uh, should I have done this, could I have done this, you know, might have, might might they have been saved, that, you know, that kind of thing. So there's that piece, but also some of these families felt that there are people out there who feel that it's so, it's, it's so paradoxical or ironical that a physician has were trained to, to, to protect and preserve life that we, we could actually, you know, not heed that ourselves and, mm. and get sick and then kill ourselves. So some of these families would be struggling with, well, I just can't believe that your husband, being a physician, would do such a thing mm. or whatever. And they, they end, end up sometimes kind of defending his actions when they wish they really didn't have to do that. If, uh-huh. you know, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, the, the other thing, too, that really came through to me and the people that I interviewed is that they really want something to change. They want something to change in our medical training that, that makes it healthier for people mm. to really graduate from medical school and to graduate from their residency intact and still healthy 
and taking care of themselves, but also for physicians way beyond their training as well. And we touched on that in the last segment on the high burnout rates. And there is a lot sort of going on at a kind of systemic and structural level of, you know, that many organizations are kind of looking at this. What can be, you know, what can be changed in the everyday um, institutional practice or the systemic practice of medicine? And then, because that'll be slow. The other thing is, you know, what can doctors themselves do to try to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and prevent getting burned out and that sort of thing. But what these families really wanted, though, is they really want to get involved in some way. Uh, many of them would like to speak to to groups, and they don't want other people to kind of go through what they've gone through. They want not just doctors to take better care of themselves, but they also want us who are in the business, the mental health business, to also be careful, you know, when we look after medical students and physicians to not be seduced by them and to get the full story. And almost all of them really want to be in, involved in that process that if if we, as treating psychiatrists, are at all worried about our patients and not certain we're getting the full story, that we make sure that with proper consent that we interview family members mm. because so many of them felt that there was so much that they wanted to disclose, to talk about, to tell, that they knew that their physician loved and wasn't telling the doctor that they were kind of whitewashing their situation. And um, they really feel that, you know, and that's also why I wanted to write this book, because I felt that they've got so much, you know, that could make our work in treating physicians so much uh, more accurate if we really have, you know, their their feelings and fears and hunches because they're living with the person, you know, 24-7, that kind of thing. So yeah. those were some of the take-home messages that have come out of the this um, you know this this work as well. So have you organized, or I know you're involved with very lots of different organizations that relate to suicide yes. and so on. Do you, I yep. mean it would seem what comes to my mind is um, some kind of speakers bureau where yes. the family members of uh, doctors who committed suicide would be able to go out you know in a kind of organized way that there would be a place to call to to get yeah. somebody like that to come out and talk to medical, especially to medical students. Yes. In fact, thank you for bringing that because, see, more and more states are actually trying to do things like this through their, well, it usually starts with the state medical association, and that branches into the physician health programs that mm-hmm. exist, I think, for every state except California. California used to have one, but I don't think it's, mm-hmm. it does any longer. But basically, that's... That's they're, they're, they, they should be resourceful and they should be advocates and sh- they should, you know, as you say, have people go out to medical centers to talk about, you know, preventing burnout or, or recognizing, say, signs of depression or substance use in yourself and, and, here, and here's what you do about it. Here's, you know, here's the go-to people, that sort of thing. So that there's more and more of that sort of going on um, and because that would really help a lot. I can't tell you how many grand rounds I do. I, you know, I do them all over the place, but I'm uh-huh. just one of many, you know, many physician health specialists who actually sort of do that because we feel that you can impart so much information that way and, you know, make sure that they have on, on, on-site resources for not just medical students but for residents and then also for the practicing physicians who have privileges there. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, one of the things... 
there is so much um, paranoia, I guess, what you were mentioning earlier about where physicians uh, don't want people to know that uh, that they're having that they're depressed or that they certainly yeah. not that yeah. they have an alcohol problem, for example, yeah. um, because there's you know there's all this. Um, it, they're just afraid they're going to be they're going to lose their license or lose privileges or um, I don't know. It's gotten a little more cutthroat these days too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. What I've done is I've actually started a campaign. Uh, some years ago, whenever I read anything in a medical journal or in the popular press of a physician going public with his or her story uh-huh. of being treated for, I always try to find their email or their snail mail address and send them a thank you note for huh. their courage for doing that. And also, they save lives by doing that because I know that from my practice that people will read those stories and because I put so many stories like that in my previous books, and I say, you know, I read that, I thought, my gosh, if other people can go get some help for their problem, then obviously I'm not alone, so I just bit the bullet, and that's why I called you, Dr. Myers, to make this appointment. So now I'm urging anybody out there who reads a story in any anything where, they, where a physician has gone public, where they've suffered from something, I said, you know, write that person a thank you note. It will, mm. it will, it's a very important gesture to do so because it is it is a very big step you know we can't just rely on everybody you know k k redfield jameson the famous psychologist mm-hmm. you know as you know went public with her bipolar illness right. but you know we can't you know we can't let k do everything i think <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. so there are there are more and more for for about 12 years in the american psychiatric association i put on a workshop every year called psychiatrists uh, talking about their own um, psychiatric illnesses. Hmm. And that was very popular. At first it wasn't, yeah. but it, it grew. And I always had four speakers, and it was really very nice. And because we thought, my gosh, if we can't even do this and we're hmm. psychiatrists, then hmm. we've got a problem. <laughs> yes, yes. So. Well, let's, um, let's see, how much time do we have left? Um Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, time goes Not fast. Not very much. Yeah. Um, well, all right. In in uh, briefly, I mean, I was so interested in all these other books that you wrote about. Maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about them. But intimate relationships in medical school, how to make them work, how's your marriage, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. Um, I, well, yeah, maybe I should just have you on another time and talk about that rather than skipping to that topic. But um, okay, I do. I do have something that I think I can offer to the listener. Yeah, and I'll tell you what that is. I put a section toward the end of the book that, and I borrowed this from Dr. David Satcher, our former U.S. Surgeon General. Yeah, it's called "Suicide Prevention Is Everyone's Business." Yeah. And so I actually appeal to all of us, all of us citizens and all of us who have been patients, and if we're under the care of a physician and something and somebody that we've been seeing for quite a while in extended care, that if we notice a change in our doctor, to so don't be hesitate don't be hesitant to just reach out. You don't need to probe, but you can just say, you know, are you taking care of yourself? Because I'm a little bit worried about you and you're important to me. And I know how hard you doctors work, so please take care of yourself. Well, and now, so kind of what, um, <laughs> what kind of reaction have you gotten from doctors about that, where patients have 
done that? Because don't most doctors get defensive? Like, <laughs> you know, if someone tells me, oh, you're looking a little tired today, doctor. You know, it's like, oh, my God, did I forget to put makeup on today? Or what happened? Why are they saying this? <laughs> um, you know, you and I mean, you don't can tell doctors get like- defensive? Yeah, you can tell we're both psychiatrists, Dr. Lieberman, because see, my patients, what they would do, they were very kind. They they didn't tell me until I until after I got back from vacation. <laughs> yes, right. Said, I'm okay. glad you went on vacation. You really needed that, right? Exactly. That's right. They'll say, oh, you seem so much more alert. I'm so glad you <laughs> took that vacation, that sort of thing. Well, yes, yes. do doctors, sure. But I got to tell you, from a clinical standpoint, though, uh, I can't tell you how many physicians, I mean, certainly a few, when they made that phone call to come to see me, they said, you know, the reason why I actually made this phone Mm. call, because just this week, one of my patients said something to me in my office that really startled me. I thought I was covering this up pretty well or doing okay, but she said to me, Dr. Brown, um, are you having trouble... With the because te- you just asked me that question a minute ago, huh. and so and the doctor of course is embarrassed and apologizes that sort of thing. But it can be that sort of wake up call, like oh my god, this is starting to show, yeah. and maybe I'm not on top of my game as much as I thought I was. So that was that's how I've kind of learned about this a little bit clinically. That you know our patients do notice, and. Yeah. Um, and also interviewing these patients who had lost their doctors to suicide. So many of them wish, in hindsight, that they had mm. said something. But they, mm, thought, it, they mm. thought, you know, I didn't know if it was my place to say something like yes, that. Yes, yes, Well, so, now we actually are at the end of our time. Okay. Tell people where they should go to okay. um, get the book. Okay, Amazon. Amazon and also Barnes & Noble. Those are probably the two easiest um, sites to... To, to get copies of it. Okay. And um, also, I want to give out your website. If you would like to read more about Dr. Myers, his okay. website is Michael F, as in Frank, Myers, M-Y-E-R-S dot com. Michael F. Myers, M-Y-E-R-S dot com. And you can find out all about his other books and his uh, a more a lengthier bio. <laughs> if I would have started with that, we would have still been on the bio now. But um, this is really, really fascinating stuff. Do you have uh, what's your what's your next book going to be? <laughs> well, right now I've, I've been so I'm, I've been so, so busy actually, sort of talking to interesting people like you, Doctor Lieberman, that <laughs> that I, I I haven't really kind of gone there yet. Okay. But there's a lot of other things. Well, I want to thank so much, I want to thank so you much so much for be... having me on your show and for this opportunity to really talk to your listening audience about a subject that is that is so important and it certainly means a tremendous amount to me and other people. And I just want to point out that um, to my listeners that you know if you've been thinking this is something that just affects doctors and their families and maybe the patients who happen to be with these, it's really affecting all of you because um, with how medicine has been changing and with how doctors are um, so much more burnt out because of all of the the um, oh the administrative stuff and all of the you know having to see people so much with so much less time and so on, uh, looking at the computer, all of these things. Think about how this is affecting your care in the future. So it is important that your doctor takes care of himself or herself 
And it's important that we address this problem because, you know, uh, I think you might agree with me, Dr. Myers, that it's, we're losing some of our best uh, physicians through suicide. Absolutely, yes, that's right. And, and others, and others who are just leaving the field, you know, who are very, yes. very talented people who have given yes. sort of years to training as well. Yes. Because those are the ones who are the most disillusioned and sad. Well, thank you again, Dr. Myers. And again, the book is called Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Cared. So thank you again, Dr. Myers. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 